Every year, we love watching the Charlie Brown Halloween special. Uh, you may recall, early in that episode, everybody's dogging Linus for believing in this magical pumpkin. And he says, there are three things I've learned never to discuss with people. Religion, politics, and the great pumpkin. Well, today we're going to deal with two of those big three taboo subjects. Uh, in light of the election coming up this Tuesday, I want us to, uh, to take a break from the parables of Jesus and, and give some time to consider how our faith intersects with politics. Now, I'm going to say up front, this is a huge topic that one sermon cannot possibly cover. There is going to be a lot of meat left on the bone at the end of this message. Um, we're just going to look at one specific paragraph that comes from uh, 1 Timothy chapter 2, the Apostle Paul's words to Timothy and the church there in Ephesus. Uh, don't anticipate that we're going to cover every possible uh, issue, policy, candidate, or anything like that. We're just going to we're going to talk generally about um, how Christians are meant to think and act. And so I, I'm going to say this: that we we as a church we don't endorse candidates. Uh, I'll never tell you how you ought to vote. That's just not what we do. But what I do want to show us from the Scripture is the supreme value of the Christian heart and character as it intersects with government and society. This is something the Scripture speaks on uh, fairly often and in great detail um, because all throughout human history there has been government. All throughout human history there's been ways that people establish uh, culture and society and leadership, laws, and, uh, and right responsibilities. And there's always been disagreement on how those things ought to be handled. And, and today, of course, is no exception. But today, I think we deal with things in a more um, overt and, uh, and in-your-face kind of fashion. With the advent of social media and the 24-hour news cycle, you know, the plain truth is, in the realm of politics, there is right now a massive amount of division, anger, hatred, slander, yelling, name-calling, lying, hypocrisy, blaming, shaming, canceling, and all-around ugliness. Is that fair to say? And it's gotten so bad that it's, it's almost impossible for a person to even have a political opinion or engage in political discourse without becoming those things. It's, it's almost impossible to remain civil and courteous, it seems. Uh, and, and this, you know, this is something we should expect from a fallen world. This shouldn't be a surprise to us. In a world governed by sin, it should not surprise us that human politics would be a hotbed of sinful actions, attitudes, and behaviors. But this is, uh, this is the perfect opportunity for the church to show forth God's light, God's truth, God's heart. It's the perfect time for Christians to put on display a kingdom that is not of this realm. 
a kingdom not governed by sinful people, but a perfect Savior. And so as Christians, and this is such a a major point here today, as Christians, we have a totally unique place in this world, that we are dual citizens. In this case, we are citizens of the United States of America, yes. But we're also told, more importantly, in Philippians 3, Paul says, our citizenship is in heaven, from which we eagerly wait for a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. We are citizens of a, an earthly kingdom, but moreover, a heavenly kingdom. And so the question becomes, okay, well, how then do we live chiefly as citizens of heaven while also living faithfully as citizens of the U.S.? So look with me at, at 1 Timothy chapter 2. Uh, there are many places we could turn in the scripture for insight on this, but this is a great one, I think and one that we ought to uh, to give special attention to today. 1 Timothy chapter 2, the words of the Apostle Paul as he writes to Timothy, who is the leading pastor and shepherd of the church in Ephesus. He says, First of all, then, I urge that entreaties and prayers, petitions and thanksgivings, be made on behalf of all men, for kings and all who are in authority, so that we may lead a tranquil and quiet life in all godliness and dignity. This is good and acceptable in the sight of God our Savior, who desires all men to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. For there is one God and one mediator also between God and men, the man Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all, the testimony given at the proper time. Now, there's a word in that paragraph that comes up over and again. Perhaps you you noticed it. It's the word all, A-L-L, all. Paul says we should pray for all people, for all who are in authority. For God desires all people to be saved, and Christ gave himself as a ransom for all. Very deliberately here, the apostle is stretching this as far as it can go. All. And all means all. (laughs) And so let me give us a a quick point before we get more specific as we look at the text. Y'all, it's very dangerous for a Christian to treat America as the center of God's attention. It's wrong for us to assume that we Americans are God's very special people. Does God love Americans? Well, of course he does. Of course. But not any more than he loves the Portuguese or the Dutch or Nigerians. Y'all, when Paul wrote these words to Timothy, the words we just read, there was no such thing as the United States nor would there be for 1,700 years. And one day, when Christ returns to establish the new heavens and the new earth, no one's going to be talking about America. All the nations that ever made up the earth are going to be footnotes at that point as we live eternally, joyfully, in the kingdom 
of God. Now, I'm not saying that to diminish or demean our country. Y'all, when Lee Greenwood sings God Bless the USA, I tear up every time. I'm proud to be an American. I love our country. It's a good thing to have love for your country. But as Christians, we cannot hold God and country up on the same pedestal or else we lose perspective. God, Paul says it, God is sovereign over all nations. God's love covers all nations. God has saved people from all nations to live for his glory and shine light into the darkness of this world. And so America is precious to God. America is precious to us. But the kingdom of God is greater and more eternally significant, more lasting, and should be more precious to us than America is. It's the kingdom of God that, uh, to which we belong as citizens first and foremost. That's what it means to be a Christian. So, how do we practically live as dual citizens? If our citizenship is in heaven, how does that direct our behavior, our rights, our voting as American citizens? Uh, well, this scripture doesn't answer every question there in exact detail. But, oh, it gives us so much to, uh, to learn from and, to, uh, and hopefully to grow from. Look at, look at this scripture again with me. Look at verse 1, 1 Timothy 2, 1. Paul says, First of all, then, I urge that entreaties and prayers, petitions and thanksgivings, be made on behalf of all men, for kings and all who are in authority. Paul says the church should pray, first of all, as of first importance. And he gives four specific uh, kinds of prayer. He says we pray in dependence on God, we pray in devotion, we pray for our needs and requests, and we pray in gratitude. Dependence, devotion, needs, and thanksgivings. Okay? But Paul is not just saying pray generally. He's actually got a specific kind of prayer in mind. He says, pray on behalf of all people. We're not just praying to God about ourselves. We're praying on behalf of others. And then again, specifically, he says, for kings and all who are in authority. Now, I want you to consider that when Paul says, pray for the king, he's talking at that time about the Roman emperor Nero who was perhaps the nastiest, most hateful ruler that Christians have ever known. Nero is the, the man who had Christians burned alive in public for sport. Paul is not writing these commands within the, the comforts of freedom and democracy. He's not encouraging these Christians to vote a certain way. There were, there were no votes. He didn't vote for anybody. You just lived under the thumb, the rule, of the emperor. And yet, right in the midst of all that, Paul is saying, as Christians, you pray sincerely for all authorities. Yes, even the ones who hate you and wish you were dead. What Paul is really doing here, he's simply echoing what Jesus said back in the Sermon on the Mount. Remember Jesus said that incredibly difficult 
command he gave us. He says, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. Love and pray for the Neros of the world. Now, praise God, we don't live in quite the same context that the early Christians did, although some Christians now in the world today do, and perhaps even worse. We need to be mindful of that. But if we think about the implications for us as to what Paul is saying we ought to do, how we ought to pray, that we are meant to pray both urgently and sincerely for all people, even our enemies, and for all of those who are in authority. Y'all, what this means is, very simply, Republicans are meant to sincerely pray for Joe Biden and Kamala Harris. And this means Democrats ought to sincerely pray for Donald Trump and Mike Pence. Now, there are, I'm sure, many Christians at this point who will say, I simply can't do that. I cannot pray that God would do anything good for that person or that God would do anything good through that person. Maybe that's how the early Christians felt too. I mean, imagine being told, pray for the wicked emperor Nero. Pray that God would do good in his life and through his rule. Pray that God would give him wisdom. Pray that God would, would use Nero to bring about peace and justice. What a difficult thing to do. But y'all, again, this is a distinctive of Christianity. How can I pray for a person whose character I don't trust, whose policies I don't like? How can I pray for somebody who I think is bad for our country and for our future? How can I do that? Well, y'all, remember in John chapter 19, what Jesus said to Pontius Pilate. Pilate looked at Jesus and said, Don't you know that I have the authority to set you free or to crucify you? And Jesus looked at him and said, You have no authority except that which is given you from above. How's that for a power move? You have no authority except that which God has given you. In Romans chapter 13, Paul says it. There is no authority except from God. So how could I ever pray for this political leader, we might think? Well, it's, it's really simple. Because we're not praying to the leader, we're praying for the leader. We pray to the one who has true and ultimate authority. That is God. We pray to the God who makes whole nations to rise and fall. We pray to the God who holds eternity in his hand as if it were nothing. And this, y'all, this needs to be a place of conviction, starting with me. If I cannot, will not, pray for people who are on the other side of the political aisle, that probably is displaying in my heart a lack of true trust in God, that God is truly the great and sovereign authority. And it shows also that I have not really embraced what it means to be a citizen of heaven. Because there are, there are issues 
in my heart, I will not allow God to touch. This is an area of my life that God cannot hold sway. I will not do what God calls me to do here. Um, If God is the true and ultimate authority, rather than any man or woman, and if God is the true wisdom giver and grace giver and Savior, we ought to be able to pray with sincerity for people, even if we disagree with them and even if they hate us. But it doesn't stop with prayer. We notice when Paul calls the church to pray, there's an anticipated outcome. You see it in the middle of verse 2. Pray for these, these men and women in authority so that we may lead a tranquil and quiet life in all godliness and dignity. What Paul is praying for right there is both, is both external and internal. When we pray to God for leaders, we are asking God to give them wisdom. We're asking for goodness and righteousness to prevail. We're asking for justice and equity so that we all may lead a peaceful existence, quiet and tranquil. And This is the ideal when it comes to human forms of government. That government would do its job to to sustain what is good and right for the sake of human flourishing, for the sake of everyone having a peaceful, just, equitable existence. That's what we ought to pray for. God, please work through this president, through these senators, this governor, this mayor, this police chief, whoever to promote a society that is just and peaceful and equitable so that we can live peaceably. And it's not just the good things we pray for, but in keeping with all that, we ought to pray against the bad stuff, against injustice and oppression and war and so on. We ought to pray that God would would use human leaders to promote peace. That's an external reality in which human beings are meant to to function. That's how life is meant to go under human government. That's the ideal. But then notice, we're to lead a peaceful life in all godliness and dignity. It's not just what the leaders do for us. It's how we live regardless of who's in charge. Y'all suppose that like the early Christians, we find ourselves under ungodly authority. It's not that hard to imagine. What if somebody takes office who has no concern for basic morality or religious liberty or racial justice or the rights of the unborn? What are we supposed to do? We just shrug our shoulders, keep your mouth shut? No. Listen, where godliness is absent in the world, The church is meant to stand tallest. Where the dignity of others is neglected or even trampled on, the church is meant to speak and act on their behalf. The church is meant to be first in line to care for and advocate for the weak and the neglected, the forgotten, the poor, whatever it may be. And history has proven this. Y'all, as we consider the context in which Paul is writing. He's writing to the early Christians in the Roman Empire. Something fascinating, 
something absolutely, truly unbelievable was taking place in the early centuries when the church first began. Y'all, the early Christians became this immediate, unexplainable counterculture. The church broke down the class systems of Rome by caring for and honoring the poor. The church broke down the race barriers of the ancient world by bringing together both Jews and Gentiles in the church and esteeming them as equals. In ancient times, there was, there was no abortion, really, but the Romans practiced infanticide, where unwanted children were cast out, thrown out, to die. But the church took them in and raised them as their own to preserve the dignity and the preciousness of life. The church esteemed women unlike the rest of the ancient world. The church lived with sexual purity unlike the Roman Empire did. And the church did all these things while proclaiming a different Lord. Jesus is Lord, not the emperor, not Caesar. They didn't worship Caesar like the rest of the empire did. You talk about a counterculture. And you know what happened in time? That fledgling little church, the church that had no political power, no influence whatsoever, this band of of misfits who lived differently than everybody else, the church won over the whole Roman Empire. How? Through their commitment to godliness and dignity. Their own personal godliness and dignity, yes, but also living out godliness and giving dignity to others, even their own enemies. And y'all, that, they literally transform the world as we know it. And the same need exists right here and now in modern-day America. I, I know, I know, the far easier thing is just to fight fire with fire. We see the way people act and speak and post, and maybe we think, well, that's just how the game is played. That's how you, that's how you get your voice heard. If they're going to turn up the volume, then so will I. If they're going to name call, then so will I. But y'all, we are citizens of heaven. And so the good fruit that God calls us to bear cannot come from planting seeds of strife and slander and division and hatred. Sinful seeds do not bear good fruit. And the truth is, a Christian's credibility erodes very quickly when we act just like everybody else. Jesus said, let your light so shine before others that they may see your good deeds and glorify your Father in heaven. That's how we're meant to live. And that, that light, that kind of light, is so powerful that even Nero couldn't put it out. No modern party, politician, or policy can put out the light of Christ in his church. And here's why. Look at verse 3. Paul says, This is good and acceptable in the sight of God our Savior, who desires all men to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. 
For there is one God and one mediator also between God and men, the man Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all. The testimony given at the proper time. In the end, why are we being commanded to pray for all people? And why does God call us to live in all godliness and dignity? Y'all, it's not merely for the purpose of a well-run government. And it's not even for our own personal spiritual health. Although those things are true. No, God's desire, God's truest, deepest desire in this is that all people be saved and come to the knowledge of the truth. God's desire is evangelistic. He's using our prayers and our lives, our behaviors, our interactions with the world. He's using all those things to contribute to his ultimate goal of bringing life where there is only death, of bringing light into the darkness. And y'all, that included Nero. That God desired his salvation, that God wanted his people to pray for it. And it certainly includes today conservatives and liberals both. We don't make distinctions because God doesn't make distinctions as to whom he died for through his son Jesus Christ, as to whom he loves, as to whom he created in his image. Whether conservative or liberal, it makes no difference at all. God loves all. And Jesus gave his life for all. Now, God's desire is that people would be saved from their sin and receive the grace that leads to life. And that's a desire we are meant to share. And that's why we're being told here, pray for it and model it, especially toward those we disagree with, especially toward those who hate us and scoff in our direction. This is the most important thing there is in the world. And Paul plants that flag securely here. You notice how he says it in verse 5. He says, For there is one God, and one mediator also between God and people, that is the man Christ Jesus, who gave his life as a ransom for all. That is our glorious hope. That is our only hope, the only hope for the world. Truly, eternally, is what we just read that Jesus Christ came to be our mediator, to take sinful humans and a perfect God and bring us together through his death on the cross. There is no hope outside of that message right there. And y'all, there's a constant reinforcement of this throughout the Bible. There's a place in John chapter 6. Jesus has just fed the 5,000. A clear and abundant miracle. These people have just eaten food that didn't exist. He created it and fed them with it. And then John tells us right after that that the people intended to come and take Jesus by force and make him their king. But Jesus withdrew from them. Now the question might be why? Why? Here's the perfect opportunity. Jesus has proven himself. The people want him to rule. Why would he run away from the opportunity to be their king? Wouldn't Jesus have made the perfect king? Wouldn't his, all of his laws would have been righteous? His leadership would have been perfectly just. 
and compassionate. There could never have been a better ruler than him. But at the prospect of becoming a political leader, Jesus ran the other way. He said no. Because what ultimate good would that have accomplished? I mean, really think about it. What ultimate good would that have accomplished? It would have accomplished a great temporary good in a specific time and place. But no, y'all, our ultimate good, our ultimate need is for a mediator. Someone who can bring us to God and save us from our sin and our death. Jesus did not come to be a leader primarily. He came to be a savior. He didn't come to be a temporary ruler. He came to be an eternal ransom. And y'all, this is something that we've got to take deep down in our hearts. I know more than likely, if you're watching this right now, you believe what I just said. You believe that. But in the midst of a political, uh, just firestorm that we're presently living in, constantly in our face. It's always a temptation for us to seek our hope in what is temporary rather than what is eternal. And it's a powerful temptation right now. That we're always, you can't check your phone, you can't turn on the television, you can't, you can't go anywhere without the, the uh, p- political... Um, battles that are being waged right now, they're just right up upon us all the time. And so how easy would it be to take what is temporary and present, and I can touch it, and I can see it, and I can, I can affect it, I can vote, to take that reality and to make that our hope. It's a very easy thing to do, to shift our hope away from God and onto politicians, policies, parties, and platforms. But there is no such hope. Those things matter. Voting, we should vote because elections matter. Yes, they do, but they they are not our hope. This is not our hope. Not even Jesus himself could have saved us from behind a desk. It took a cross. He didn't come to be our leader. He came to be our ransom, ultimately. Because only through the cross can we be saved. And so we should vote. We should support righteous leaders and righteous platforms wherever it's possible. We should do the very best we can to influence the state of our country for good. But our hope is not there. Our hope is in Christ alone. And so as we, as we close, I, I want to I point us to one more scripture. It comes from the first chapter of the book of Acts. Um, there's, a, there's a statement that we see in Acts 1 that I haven't honestly really noticed or given much credit to this before. But it, it occurred to me this week um, how much I need to hear this, and, and, and I hope it will encourage you to. In Acts chapter 1, Jesus has just been raised from the dead. He's meeting with his disciples in order to give him his parting words. Very important moment here. And so in Acts 1, Luke records this in verse 6. It says, So when they had come together, they were asking Jesus, the disciples were asking Jesus, saying, Lord, is it at this time you are restoring the kingdom to Israel? 
Jesus said to them, It is not for you to know the times or epochs which the Father has fixed by his own authority. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. And you shall be my witnesses, both in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria, and even to the remotest part of the earth. You see what the disciples were asking for, what they were hoping for. Jesus, now that you've risen from the dead, surely you're going to finally overthrow all the evil Romans and reestablish Israel. Is it going to happen now? Aren't you, are you going to make Israel great again? And Jesus says, no, that's not the plan. That's not the plan. You will receive power. What kind of power? Political power? Social influence? No. Spiritual power. When the Holy Spirit comes upon you, and you will be my witnesses to the whole world. That is not what the disciples anticipated. And to some degree, that conflicted with what they wanted. They wanted Israel to be great. They wanted God to make things right, for the bad people to be demoted and destroyed, and for the good people to be in charge again. But Jesus said, that's not how I'm going to change the world. I'm going to empower you to be my witnesses to all the nations. Friends, we, this is our calling right now as Christians, we are God's witnesses to the world of the glorious gospel of Jesus Christ. We are empowered by the Spirit of God to do what only God in His grace can accomplish, to shine light in the darkness, to bring life where there is only death, and to do it through the ransom of His Son, Jesus Christ, our Savior. Listen, nothing, nothing that happens on Tuesday can change that. Nothing that happens on Tuesday can move the needle a millimeter on what Jesus Christ has accomplished and what, on what he has called his people to do. Just as nothing can change the sovereign power and the sovereign plan of God. God, as he always has, God will use human leaders for the fulfillment of his ultimate good and ultimate purpose. God has always done that. Even the worst of leaders cannot thwart God's purposes. God will use them too, evil as they may be. The Nebuchadnezzars and the Pontius Pilots and the, and the Herods and the Neros, God has always used even the worst of men to turn their evil around and to redeem uh, His ultimate plan to produce His ultimate good for all eternity. God has the authority to accomplish what he wants to do, what happens on Tuesday is important, but is not ultimate. What happens on Tuesday can't change the eternal purpose of God and the eternally significant privilege of God's people. And so the question for us is, okay, regardless of outcome this week, what is the world going to see in us? What will our family, our neighbors, our Facebook friends see 
in those who follow Jesus? Well, here's what the scripture would call us to. With great clarity and conviction, may the world see in us peace and godliness and dignity. May the world see in us everlasting hope, even in the midst of political turmoil. And may they see the reflection of a Savior who loves them and who gave his life as a ransom for all. Let's pray together. Father, we, I thank you that, um, that your words are evergreen, that we have not found ourselves in a, in a culture or in a moment, in a scenario where somehow you just haven't spoken to us. Thank you, Father, that these words written almost 2,000 years ago are as true and relevant and needed as they ever were. Because you are the eternal God, and therefore your word is eternally true. You set the standard for who we are, for how we live, for how we view the world. And so I pray, Father, this, this morning for us, as we, as we prepare for a, a tumultuous week, regardless of who comes out on top Tuesday, there is going to be a tremendous amount of anger and despair and name-calling and screaming and, and all manner of, of um, dark and disturbing things. We just know it. And so, Father, what a great opportunity for the light you shine through your church to shine brightly and abundantly, peacefully and even joyfully. Even if our preferred candidate doesn't win, that our peace, our godliness, our dignity, our joy, our thanksgiving, Father, would resound because we know that there is one God and one mediator, the Son, Jesus Christ, whom you sent to be our ransom and the ransom for the world. And so, Father, root our confidence deep down here. Make us so confident in Jesus. Make us so deeply trusting in you that we can pray for people on the other side. And we can pray sincerely because we pray to you. We're not praying to them. And that, Lord, our life doesn't depend, our hope does not depend on who's in office. Because we have a Savior who rules over all the universe. And every tongue will confess Him and every knee will bow at the name of Jesus Christ. He is our true King. And so, Lord, we can face this week with supreme confidence and I hope and pray supreme godliness because our world deeply needs it. Father, make us to see how truly unique the church can be in the face of this, this painful and, and 
divided um, present moment. The early church turned Rome upside down. Lord, may the, may the American church uh, be doing the same thing. Not, Lord, not by seeking power um, that is temporary and merely human, but Lord, give us a heart that we seek and receive the power of the Holy Spirit. Let us live in, in such a way, Lord, that we are trusting you and revealing you in all your grace to the world around us. Lord, let your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. We ask it in Christ's name. Amen.